Mark, this is Democracy Now! And we're here actually today to discuss the exciting progress that we've achieved under the Operation Warp Speed, our historic initiative to develop, test, manufacture, and deliver a vaccine in record time. And that's what it is, in record time. As the world's biggest phase three clinical trial of a COVID-19 vaccine study begins in the United States, we'll speak to a BBC science reporter who took part in a vaccine study at Oxford and look at who's profiting from the race to develop a vaccine. Then we go to Texas to look at how hundreds of people who came to the United States seeking asylum were secretly held in hotels for days on end before being expelled from the country. We have children and other asylum seekers in here with no paper trail. This is literally a black box of information. If we cannot get their information, they will be expelled from this country back into violence. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Senate Republicans in the White House have agreed on a plan to slash unemployment benefits for the tens of millions of workers who've lost their jobs since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. For the last four months, unemployed workers have received an additional $600 per week, but Republicans want to reduce that to just $200. Many economists fear the cut could lead to a spike in evictions and a rise in hunger. This comes as the reported U.S. death toll from COVID-19 tops 148,000. President Trump's national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, has become the highest-ranking U.S. government official to test positive. O'Brien abruptly left the White House Thursday, but his staff reportedly only learned why from media reports on Monday. It's unclear when O'Brien was last with President Trump. In related news, the world's biggest Phase three clinical trial of a COVID-19 vaccine study began in the United States Monday. The vaccine was developed by the biotech firm Moderna and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. 30,000 and people are expected to participate in the trial. On the same day, Trump traveled to North Carolina to visit a Fuji film facility working on a COVID-19 vaccine and push states to reopen despite the recent surge of cases. I really do believe a lot of the governors should be opening up states that uh, they're not opening, and we'll see what happens with them. But a lot will have to do with the fact that therapeutically, I think you can have some great answers vaccine-wise. The University of Notre Dame has announced it will not host the first presidential debate September 29th due to the pandemic. The debate will now take place at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and is co-sponsored by the Cleveland Clinic. This comes as schools across the country are deciding whether to resume in-person classes. In Florida, over 300 children have been hospitalized from COVID-19. The number has increased by 23 percent over the previous week. Meanwhile, in California, the COVID-19 death toll at San Quentin State Prison has reached 19. In other coronavirus news, former presidential candidate Herman Cain remains hospitalized. He tested positive in early July after not wearing a mask at President Trump's indoor rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The African-American former presidential candidate is in his 70s and a cancer survivor. The global COVID-19 death toll has topped 654,000. On Monday, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak the most severe global health emergency the WHO has ever faced. 
This is the sixth time a global health emergency has been declared under the international health reg regulations, uh, but it's easily the most severe. In the past six weeks, the total number of cases has roughly doubled. In other international news, Vietnam is locking down its third largest city, Da Nang, and evacuating 80,000 tourists after 15 residents tested positive, the first confirmed COVID-19 cases in Vietnam since April. Bloomberg's reporting the number of new COVID-19 cases are now growing faster in India than anywhere in the world. India already has the world's third most cases behind the United States and Brazil. A coalition of Brazilian healthcare workers, unions, and social groups have filed a complaint with the International Criminal Court accusing Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, of committing a crime against humanity by responding to the pandemic with contempt, neglect and denial. On Monday, Bolsonaro removed his mask while greeting supporters just days after he announced he no longer had COVID-19. He tested positive three times, then negative. Attorney General William Barr is testifying before the House Judiciary Committee today on a range of issues, including the Trump administration's deployment of federal agents to Portland, Oregon, which has been the site of two months of daily anti-racist protests. Barr calls the protests, quote, an assault on the government of the United States, according to his prepared remarks. This comes as Trump is reportedly planning to send even more federal agents to Portland, which could include an additional 50 Customs and Border Protection officers. Meanwhile, a National Guardsman's appearing today before the House Natural Resources Committee, where he'll testify that the violent June 1st crackdown on demonstrators in Lafayette Square near the White House, which was ordered by Attorney General Barr, was a, quote, unprovoked escalation, unquote, and that protesters were, quote, engaged in the peaceful expression of their First Amendment rights. In related news, the Electronic Frontier Foundation obtained records showing the San Francisco Police Department engaged in mass surveillance of protesters in May and June using a downtown business district's camera network. The body of the late civil rights icon, 17-term Georgia Congressmember John Lewis, arrived at the U.S. Capitol Monday, where he became the first black lawmaker to lie and stayed in the rotunda. Former colleagues, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, paid tribute in a ceremony honoring Lewis's legacy. Earlier in the day, a motorcade carrying Lewis's coffin stopped at the Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln memorials and the newly established Black Lives Matter Plaza, which Lewis visited before his death before the procession made its way to the Capitol. Notably absent from yesterday's ceremony was President Trump. A reporter asked him if he planned on paying his respects to Congressmember Lewis. No, I won't be going. No. No, I won't be going, he said. Trump did not publicly acknowledge Congressmember Lewis's death until 12 hours after it was announced, after he had tweeted 40 other times. He tweeted then, saddened to hear the news of civil rights hero John Lewis passing, Melania and I send our prayers to he and his family, Trump tweeted. In election news, 360 Democratic delegates say they will oppose the Democratic Party platform if it does not include Medicare for all, which presumptive nominee Joe Biden does not support. A petition signed by the delegates reads, quote, 
This country is currently in the throes of a catastrophic public health crisis. Millions of Americans have lost their health care insurance because of job losses. This crisis has highlighted the need to separate health care from employment, they wrote. In other news from the DNC, platform committee members overwhelmingly voted against proposed language that would oppose illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank and support conditioning U.S. aid if Israel moves ahead with annexation plans of the West Bank. In Sacramento, California, immigration rights activists protested outside the mansion of Governor Gavin Newsom Monday to demand mass clemency and the immediate release of people in state prisons and immigration prisons. Protesters chained themselves to the gates of the governor's home. This is Lisa Knox, an attorney with the legal center Centro Legal de la Raza. We're here today not just to ask, but to demand that Gavin Newsom live up to the values he says he holds. Fourteen undocumented activists and immigration attorneys were arrested at the action and released early this morning. In Malaysia, former Prime Minister Najib Razak has been found guilty on multiple charges of graft, sentenced to 12 years in jail. The charges stem from the multibillion-dollar looting of the government's investment fund. Najib faces a total of 42 charges in five separate trials. Last week, Goldman Sachs reached a nearly $4 billion settlement with the current Malaysian government over its role in the corruption scandal. Goldman Sachs raised $6.5 billion for the fund, which was routinely looted by government officials, people working for the fund and two senior Goldman bankers. In Britain, a trial is underway over the 2015 Mariana Dam collapse in Minas Gerais, Brazil, which killed 19 people and destroyed nearby villages as mud flow with millions of tons of toxic mining waste blanketed nearby villages. The San Marco mine was owned by the Brazilian company Vale, an Anglo-Australian multinational BHP, which is being sued by over 200,000 Brazilians, local governments and organizations, including indigenous tribes whose lands were decimated by the disaster. This this is Guarani indigenous chief, Caraí, Peru. What we had, they took everything. They finished it off. With what they did in our river, it ended everything for us. How are we going to survive with this polluted river? They have already killed us. In sports news, Major League Baseball's postponed three Miami Marlins games after at least 12 players and two coaches with a team tested positive for the coronavirus. The news came just four days into the new season, which was shortened with games played in empty ballparks due to the pandemic. The team is now quarantining in Philadelphia, where they had just played. The development also forced the Philadelphia Phillies to postpone their home game last night with the New York Yankees. In other baseball news, the Tampa Bay Rays tweeted Friday, today is opening day, which means it's a great day to arrest the killers of Brianna Taylor. The MLB team also committed to donating $100,000 annually to local racial justice groups. Meanwhile, the NFL announced Monday it's canceling its preseason. And The New York Times revealed President Trump lied last week when he announced he was scheduled to throw out the first pitch on August 15th at Yankee Stadium. In fact, he was never invited. Trump made the announcement shortly before Dr. Anthony Fauci threw out the first pitch at the Yankees national game in Washington. Over the weekend, Trump announced he didn't have time to go to Yankee Stadium. In environmental news, Deutsche Bank is the latest major financial institution to say it'll stop funding Arctic drilling projects. This comes as Siberia continues to battle wildfires and record high temperatures spurred by greenhouse gas emissions from human activity. 
And a new investigation by the Public Accountability Initiative reveals major polluters and financial institutions are also funding powerful police groups across the United States. The companies include Chevron, Shell and Wells Fargo, which pour money into police foundations in cities, including Seattle, Chicago, Washington, New Orleans and Salt Lake City. Carol Muffet of the Center for International Environmental Law said, quote, this report sheds a harsh light on the ways police violence and systemic racism intersect with the climate crisis. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York. Juan Gonzalez is sheltering at home in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, after months of denial, President Donald Trump made his second-ever public appearance wearing a mask in North Carolina Monday, where he said a coronavirus vaccine could be available by the end of the year. He made the comments while touring a Fuji film plant that has been repurposed to make vaccines. And we're here actually today to discuss the exciting progress that we've achieved under the Operation Warp Speed, our historic initiative to develop, test, manufacture and deliver a vaccine in record time. And that's what it is, in record time. Likewise, therapeutically, we are very, very advanced. You're hearing about it, and you'll be hearing about it a lot more in the next two weeks. President Trump did not wear a mask during his news conference, and overnight he tweeted to his more than 80 million followers, I know you people want to talk about a mask. Hello, you don't need a mask. Well, the first major COVID-19 vaccine study launched in the U.S. Monday in a collaboration between the drug maker Moderna and the National Institutes of Health. 30,000 people join a clinic trial this summer to a clinical trial this summer to determine the vaccine's safety and effectiveness. Top expert and the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said results from the late stage study could be available as early as November. The company Pfizer also launched a late-stage study Monday that will involve 30,000 people from the United States, Argentina, Brazil, and Germany. This all comes as a vaccine being developed by Oxford University has triggered an immune response. For more, we go to London, where we're joined by a science journalist who participated in Oxford's vaccine trial. Richard Fisher is a senior journalist at BBC Future. He wrote about his experience in a piece headline, Coronavirus, What I Learned in Oxford's Vaccine Trial. Richard Fisher, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about why you decided that you would be injected. Hi there. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, so for me, it was uh, both a, a personal decision and a, and a journalistic one. So. Um, I um, wanted to do something that um, uh, you know helped the collective effort to to get us closer to a vaccine. I mean, I've been relatively fortunate um, in this this pandemic in the sense that I'm not a frontline worker. I don't work in a shop or in a hospital or, or drive a bus. I'm a, I'm a journalist who works behind a desk working at home. So my my level of risk is is very low uh, compared with many others. And so I just saw an opportunity to kind of like help a, a study that I. Um, admired for the for the pace and speed at which it's moving along, and um, the second reason is is a kind of j j journalistic curiosity one. Um, I report and write about clinical trials and and uh, and how science works from the outside, but I've never actually been part of one. And so, in, in a kind of like method journalism kind of way, it was a, it was a great opportunity to actually see what it's like inside a, a clinical trial and what the process is like for the individuals who do volunteer. 
And could you take us through some of the uh, of the process uh, once you started the trial? Because this is an unusual situation where even before the, the trials are, f- are fully completed, we're finding pl- uh, countries like Brazil this week announced that they're putting down two hundred eighty seven million dollars for uh, initial doses uh, of the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, the, I mean, natural experiences is uh, with with the Oxford trial has been has been excellent so far. I mean, they the, the way the way it works is, is you, you sign up on the website, fill out um, a form, a questionnaire asking you about your medical history. And then from there, you go to an initial screening appointment. And uh, in my case, it was in a the hospital um, in Tooting, South London, where my daughter was born. You know, I, I, I'd been there many times. And uh, it was a repurposed neurology ward that had been kind of like set aside for the the, the vaccine trials. And it was it was a I mean the hospital business hospital at the moment is is a um, is certainly different to when you go to see the daughter, the birth of your child. Um, it's uh, everyone's wearing masks, the strong smell of bleach everywhere. Um, but once in the, to the um, the the vaccine trial, they they talk you through. They want, to, they want to inform you, make sure that you know everything about the trial. So they, they explain the science to you. They explain the possible side effects. They also talk a bit about what, what you won't be able to do, what you will be able to do. Um, you know, for example, you, I can't give blood for the next year. Um, if, uh, if I was a woman, I, wouldn't, I would be asked to, to use contraception. Um, so so they're, they're very careful to make sure that you have full knowledge of everything that is going on within the trial and the potential side effects, uh, mild and severe, that you may or may not experience. And um, so it's it's a very thorough process at the start. And um, then the following week, in my case, I went along and um, I had the, the the vaccine. Well, I, I should say I didn't have. I don't know whether I, I actually have the experimental vaccine. It's a fifty fifty chance. So that in the Oxford trial, there's there's ten thousand of us, and we're split into two groups, and half will get the experimental vaccine being developed. Oxford University, the other half get a, a vaccine that's being developed for, sorry, a vaccine that is already developed for meningitis and sepsis. And so I don't know which vaccine I have, nor does the doctor who injects you either. And that, that's to make sure that the, the, the actual results of the trial are, are fully robust and in a double blind study. And, and how long was the process of the actual trial before the uh, preliminary results were announced? Ah, well, I see. So, so this is, it's in various different phases. So the, the preliminary results were based on the initial thousand people who volunteered in an earlier phase of the trial. So um, a, a clinical trial, as, as many of your audience will know, move, moves through various different stages. The, uh, a vaccine is tested um, with, with animals uh, first and, and the, the, the kind of the basic safety is, is understood. And then there's a small initial trial. And that's the results of which they, that was announced um, the week, a week or two ago, that, that suggested very promisingly that um, there was no severe uh, safety problems and also that there was an immune response generated in the bodies of the people that, that had the vaccine. So that, that's very promising. But what needs to be done now is, is expanding out into phase two, phase three, which is, is what's happening with the Moderna trial as well in the US at the moment. Um, this is about kind of testing safety and efficacy at scale. Um, in order to kind of have the confidence to deliver a vaccine to an entire country to the entire world to billions of people, you need to test over a large scale. You need a lot of people um, in a lot of different uh, kind of environments experiencing the, the uh, different lives, the virus in different ways. And um, only then can you kind of like gain the confidence over time to to know whether a vaccine 
Um, it's both safe um, because, because it may, you may see very rare side effects in a, in a larger group of people. Um, and then secondly, like uh, whether, whether it actually works. So the, the, these, this is part of like science, like the long term, the long haul of developing a vaccine. I think it's, it's often kind of thought that you can just throw money, money at the problem and get a vaccine quicker. And it's, it's certainly true that like, we are accelerating vaccine development at the moment. Um, I mean, Operation Warp Speed is an example of that in the US. Um, but uh, there needs to be patience because um, it, only time will tell whether a, a vaccine works at scale. And this is something that's like is, is a challenge for the regulators. Um, at some point down the track with these vaccines rocketing through the trials, a regulator is going to have to say, yes, this is OK, we, we can roll this out. But um, a queue is going to instantly form of, of people who, who want this vaccine. Everybody in the world needs a vaccine at the moment. So there's huge political, social pressure on these scientists. I mean, it's, uh, it's a heavy burden to carry. I mean, it, it, I think it's fascinating from the point of view of the, the, the scientists. Um, many of them were working in different fields before this pandemic. You know, they were working on coronavirus vaccines, but not necessarily thinking about a pandemic of, of this scale. So now they have the expectation and hopes of billions of people around the world on their shoulders. So I have a huge admiration for the scientists involved in this work. Richard Fisher, I wanted to ask about uh, your thoughts on President Trump, you know, going to North Carolina last yesterday and before the big name of pushing for a vaccine, which is called Warp Speed, Operation Warp Speed. Um, he talked about the various vaccine programs, but then last night tweeted, um, you don't need to wear a mask, as if going for a vaccine in the months to come means that, and as he said yesterday, um, states should be reopening, schools should be reopening for this promise in the future. Your brother's a, do in a, doc a doctor in the uh, intensive care unit nearby where you are. Can you talk about the connection between these two things? And then if you could respond to a poll by Associated Press that found that half of Americans say— um, that they would get a COVID-19 vaccine, but about 30 percent said they weren't sure, and another one in five said they would refuse to get a vaccine. Maybe part of their concern is that word warp speed. Is this going to be safe? There's a lot to unpack, but if you could. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's, I mean, that those statistics about people refusing a vaccine, is, it, it, that is worrying because— um, you know, I, I think the, the, the safety of, of these, these vaccines is being tested in, in many, many people. And I, 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 would, I, would, I would worry if people turn it down based on kind of minor side effects and, and concerns that they might have read on social media. I mean, if you're somebody who is unsure about having a vaccine, I, would, I just would suggest reading, reading go, going to authoritative sources, if reading journalism from the BBC or magazines like New Scientist or Stat News based in Boston. I mean, this will tell you about like how the vaccines actually work and what what the process is. Um, the question of like the wearing masks. I mean, I mean, I mean, I know this this has been hotly debated over here in the UK as well. I mean, it's only just been the case that masks are have become compulsory inside shops, um, and there's there certainly is not the political question over here that it is in the US. Um, the science suggests that. Wearing a mask reduces your risk. It can't keep you safe. I mean, there's no such thing as being totally safe during a pandemic, but it's about reduction of risk. If something like reduces your risk just a little bit and also re reduces the risk of the people around you, 
then I think it's something that's worth doing. It's, it seems a very easy thing to do for me personally. I, you know, I don't mind wearing a mask. Um, the, as for the vaccine, I mean, it's, we're still a way off. I mean, it's, it's coming, but the typical timeline for vaccine development is, is, is measured in years, not, not months. I mean, I, I must admit, I was, I was surprised to hear Anthony Fauci suggest that the vaccine might, might come October, November. I mean, that's, that's much faster than I expected. And, and he's more qualified than me to answer that question. But um, I think I think it's worth remembering we're in it for the long haul. I mean, th- th- this um, disease will be around for a long time. It's also the case that um, we shouldn't hold out hope that the first vaccine will be what's called a sterilizing vaccine. So many people think of a vaccine as, as something that it will just wipe out and that's it. And and you can't, you won't be able to get, you, you won't catch the disease. But the some of the preliminary evidence suggests that that it may take more than one vaccine um, and the first one might necessarily wipe out the disease people may still be able to for example um, be protected which would be fantastic that would be of huge importance but they could still pass it on and that's something that that would still allow the disease to spread to those who haven't have it or, or those who cannot can't have a vaccine because they're vulnerable for other reasons. Um, for example, if they're, if they're Twitter has or... removed a tweet that was retweeted by President Trump that falsely said there's a cure for coronavirus. He retweeted a tweet that said COVID has cure. America, wake up. But uh, Richard Fisher, before we go, I wanted to ask you, you spent a year here with a Knight Fellowship um, looking at the problem of governments focused on short-termism. Can you make the connection between attitudes like these when it comes to coronavirus and denial of the climate crisis, for example? It's it's definitely the case that um, there is embedded in the structure of of like our political systems um for any politician of of any um kind of party that the 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 incentives are there to to kind of please the the base and the voters in the next election rather than make decisions that benefit um society 5 10 15 even 50 years down the track so you know it's it's this has been something that's been embedded within democracy um, for, for, for many years. So the, the question is, is more just how, how can we incentivize politicians to do things that, that benefit the next one? You know, so if, you, if a politician knows that their term is coming to an end, um, uh, why, why would they do something that they won't get the political credit for? And that, that's a challenge for, po- for politics generally, I think. There, there are efforts to kind of think about that and think about like how our decisions um, and, and how our politicians um, make decisions that affect future generations, but it's a tough problem. Um, I think I think it's particularly acute at the moment with the rise of populist politics, um, because when you have politicians doing things that only speak to their base, um, then then that very much leads to short termism over like long the longer term benefit for society. Richard Fisher, I want to thank you for being with us, senior journalist at BBC Future, volunteer in the COVID-19 vaccine trial at Oxford University. We'll link to your piece, Coronavirus, What I Learned in Oxford's Vaccine Trial. In fact, Richard doesn't know if he got the vaccine or a placebo. But when we come back, we'll look at the government program pumping billions of dollars into vaccine development. Who's profiting? Stay with us.
mind, but now I performing Amazing Grace yesterday in the Capitol Rotunda for the late Georgia Democratic lawmaker John Lewis. John Lewis, the first African-American lawmaker whose body is laying in state in the Capitol Rotunda. This is Democracy Now! The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Operation Warp Speed. That's the name of the government program pumping billions into vaccine development and research. But who's profiting? We look now at the nearly $6 billion the U.S. government has invested into coronavirus vaccines, testing and treatment. The Trump administration's poured taxpayer money into more than six vaccine efforts, recently announcing a nearly $2 billion contract with Pfizer and a German company for 100 million vaccine doses by December. Earlier this month, the Trump administration gave $1.6 billion to a small company, Novavax, which has never brought a vaccine to market in its more than 30-year history. This comes as The New York Times reports corporate insiders are profiting off the rush to make a vaccine. The Times reports, quote, insiders from at least 11 companies, most of them smaller firms whose fortunes often hinge on the success or failure of a single drug, have sold shares worth well over a billion dollars since March. For more, we're joined by Peter Mieberduk. He is the director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines Program, which has released a database that tracks the billions of taxpayer dollars supporting COVID tests, treatments and vaccines. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Peter. It's great to have you with us. So lay out who is getting this money. I mean, people want a vaccine, that's for sure. Billions and billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars is going into where? How do these companies prove that there's a possibility, a path to success? Well, we don't know how they're how they're proving their path to success because there is a striking lack of transparency in the selection process. But BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Agency, as you've said, is giving hundreds of millions of dollars to each of a number of pharmaceutical corporations to advance uh, vaccine uh, development and also manufacturing. In many cases, these are vaccine candidates that are already built on taxpayer-funded uh, science. In some cases, the National Institutes of Health actually owns or claims patents on some of the key technologies. So the public has been investing in these technologies for a very long time. Uh, but today, we see executives and hedge funds making tremendous paydays just by announcing uh, snippets of positive news, uh, even though their candidates may turn out not to be successful. And I wanted to ask you, because this is not just happening, obviously, in the United States, in the European Union, in China, in India, and we've seen recently uh, in Brazil, huge sums are being invested in what is essentially the California gold rush for the pharmaceutical industry. Untold wealth awaits those who are able to produce these, uh, these initial vaccines, and yet there is so little as you mentioned, transparency as to who is getting this and uh, and how the decisions are being made. Yeah, we don't have the contracts. So uh, some heavily redacted contracts from BARDA uh, were obtained by uh, a consumer group called Knowledge Ecology International, 
last month, uh, but we but they're so heavily redacted that it's still hard to tell whether any significant conditions are being attached to the hundreds of millions of dollars that uh, taxpayers are giving out. Indeed, we want to be investing uh, in vaccine research and development, but it's important that there are conditions attached regarding, for example, affordability and reasonable pricing, regarding plans to get to scale and supply and to transfer technology so that uh, we can teach the world how to make this vaccine and avoid severe rationing uh, in years ahead. So there's much more to know. But what is clear right now is that stock options are increasing five and six fold for the executives in these firms, uh, even as they exaggerate uh, their role uh, in, in Operation Warp Speed. Can you talk, Peter, about the uh, company Novavax? Um, BARDA, uh, that's again the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, um, was uh, the single largest award from BARDA, $1.6 billion to Novavax, the little-known Maryland firm that had not developed a successful vaccine in 30 years. What do you know about it? Why did they get $1.6 billion. Uh, we don't know, uh, is the short answer. And we don't know too much more about Novavax than, than what you've said. Uh, so it's, it's, the largest, it's the largest grant, and it just indicates uh, how little transparency there is in this process and how much we need to know, unfortunately. It's, we do know that Novavax's stock options for, for executives jumped from $20 million to $100 million uh, with, with, uh, some of the, with their close association with WorkSpeed. So there's that. But in terms of the science, in terms of how it's progressing, we know very little. And this whole issue of the executives being able to uh, uh, to cash in even before uh, a drug particularly comes to uh, uh, is proven uh, effective or comes uh, a vaccine is proven effective and comes to market. Uh, is there any way to uh, to restrain this kind of activity, especially in an international emergency like this? Well, we we certainly should be attaching conditions as regard reasonable pricing. We certainly um, should be demanding a, a great deal more transparency in the um, in the disclosures that are made. We Trump's vaccines czar actually comes from GlaxoSmithKline, uh, and we had petitioned that he at least have to uh, disclose his financial conflicts of interest were turned down by the HHS inspector general. Uh, so I, I think the public needs to demand quite a bit more here. But really what we're primarily concerned about are the conditions of affordability and supply that come out of this, uh, because no corporation manufactures at scale to supply the entire world. So a year two years from now, we could be encountering a serious, essentially a global vaccine apartheid where much of the world's population does not have access to vaccines. And that's because there's a tremendous reticence among our leaders to order corporations uh, to transfer their technology, to impose any conditions whatsoever uh, on top of these grants, despite the fact that all the leading candidates that are being considered for Operation Work Speed, one way or another, uh, are benefiting, benefiting not just from the barter grants, but from early stage research by federal scientists, taxpayer funded studies that led to the development of the technology that's being used to develop the vaccines today. So we've already invested in these vaccines and we we should have the right to attach certain conditions and make sure everybody can access a safe and effective vaccine 
when it's developed. Peter, let's talk about how um, investors are benefiting from the billions of dollars going to these drug companies. Um, for example, the New York Times reports after Vaxart, a small San Francisco-based company, was selected to be part of a federal program to develop a vaccine. Stock options for insiders at the company soared. A hedge fund that partly controls the company immediately gained something like $200 million of profits. Yeah, that's right. So, as you've said, the problem is that the companies, the executives, the hedge funds are feeding on people's hope and desperation. And it takes only a little bit of positive news to send stocks uh, soaring or conversely, a little bit of negative news to send them uh, plummeting right now. And so Vaxart, for example, uh, noted in a press release that it, it had been selected by Operation Warp Speed. Now, selected just meant in this case a uh, clinical trial involving primates. Vaxart's neither receiving BARDA funding nor negotiations to receive that funding. But just that bit of news, just that claim that of a connection to the federal government uh, led Vaxart's uh, stocks to soar, as you said, allowed the hedge fund to make $200 million and, and walk away. Um, so that's the sort of climate that uh, we're in. And we obviously, you know, we need we need a little more discipline. We need transparency around the standards of how these contracts are being selected and what what we can uh, what we can expect out of them. And do you have any concerns about uh, any other members of the Trump administration who may be in one way or another uh, being able to privately benefit from the Inside information that is developed within the administration as to who gets funded or uh, or, or uh, who who gets uh, government support. Well, in addition to Monsef Slaoui, the vaccines are, as I said, comes from GSK, was on the board of Moderna and may be heavily invested. We we don't really know because he's not been forced to disclose his ties. The Trump administration is built on a, a number of uh, pharmaceutical executives that have played. Uh, key roles. Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services, is an insulin price spiker from Eli Lilly. Uh, formerly, former uh, advisor Joe Grogan uh, in the White House came from Gilead, where he was a lobbyist. Um, so these policies, these, this background certainly has informed the Trump administration's policy in this area, and it's extreme deference to corporate interests in, in Operation Warp Speed and elsewhere. The central problem that we see, you know, it's appropriate to be investing great sums of money right now in an effort and, and putting money, uh, investing money at risk, recognizing that some vaccines are not going to work out. We have to spend that uh, money as a people in order to develop a safe and effective vaccine as quickly as possible. Uh, ha however, we, we should be able to ask for certain conditions uh, attached to that, and we are very concerned uh, about what happens when a vaccine comes online uh, and there's simply not enough manufacturing capacity to get it to everyone who needs it. Finally, Peter, uh, U.S. PERG organized a letter that's been signed by hundreds of health professionals that essentially says uh, to President Trump, shut it down, start over, do it right. What are you demanding? We're demanding that the that the Trump administration impose first BARDA needs to publish the contracts. We need to see what is being done with the billions in taxpayer dollars and more to come that are that it's being spent in the vaccine hunt. Second, we need to attach basic conditions to the contracts 
reasonable pricing and technology transfer. Technology transfer means we have we have to order companies to disclose their confidential information to license their patents so that other manufacturers can also make those same vaccines. Essentially, if we don't teach the world how to make vaccines, there will be a global vaccine apartheid. There will be serious rationing in the years ahead. The delay uh, will cause uh, many will will cause great setbacks in poverty. It will cost people's lives. It could come with cost to political stability in less wealthy parts of the world. So we have to be willing to order corporations to do what is necessary to scale up supply. And that means not basing the vaccine market on monopolies, not uh, simply entrusting uh, any given corporation with hundreds of millions of our dollars to then just go and do the right thing, but making it a national project to get to scale, to liberate the vaccine technology and help others manufacture it, to publish the data so we can verify safety and efficacy and, uh, and so on. Should patents be forbidden? Five seconds. Patents, for, well, they should be licensed. There shouldn't be monopolies. Everything should be licensed non-exclusively, and, openly, so and, that others can make use of the technology. And I should say that letter from U.S. Perg and hundreds of health professionals is more broad, beyond vaccines, uh, again telling the U.S. government uh, to um, uh, shut it down, to go back to a national strategy um, for dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Peter Mieberduk, I want to thank you for being with us, Director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines Program, organization recently releasing a database that tracks the billions of taxpayer dollars supporting COVID test treatments and vaccines. When we come back, we will go to the one of the people who went to a local hotel in McAllen, Texas, and saw children being held there, immigrant children. What's happened to them? This state being hit not only by the pandemic, but by the hurricane. Stay with us. Quartet playing Besame Mucho. This is Democracy Now! The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Under a shocking new Trump administration policy, hundreds of people came to the United States seeking asylum, were secretly held in hotels for days on end before being expelled from the country, often with little or no paper trail. Between April and the end of June, more than 200 unaccompanied immigrant children, including babies and toddlers, were held in hotels then 
removed. A private contractor for ICE—that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement—took the children to three Hampton Inn hotels in Arizona and near the Texas-Mexico border. ICE paid MVM Incorporated to transport and monitor the children. The same company previously held separated immigrant children in squalid conditions in empty office buildings. As Hurricane Hannah threatened South Texas this weekend, many children held at the hotel were moved to different locations, though it's not clear where. And then— Last night, on Monday night, the ACLU and the Texas Civil Rights Project and their co-counsel successfully sued to stop the expulsion of 17 people detained in the Hampton Inn Hotel. Officials agreed instead to transfer them to the custody of ORR—that's the Office of Refugee Resettlement, where they were supposed to be held. All of this comes after members of the Texas Civil Rights Project went to the Hampton Inn Hotel in McAllen last week and attempted to offer legal help to people detained there. In in this video, you can see and hear attorney Andrew Udelsman as he is getting off an elevator on the fourth floor, confronted by men who refuse to identify themselves. Can we see your badge, sir? Sir, you can't come here. You can't be here. Can you ask who you are? Can, can I ask who you are, sir? Soy abogado aquí para ayudar. Si necesitas ayuda, dígame tu nombre. Dígame tu nombre. If you're detained, give me your name. Get out if you're smart. Get out. Who are you? Who are you? Don't worry about who, who you are. Are you police? Don't worry about who we are. You need to get out. Get out. Get out. Get out, get out now. Are you police? Don't worry police. about who we are. Are you police? Get out. Get out. An attorney with the Texas Civil Rights Project yelling to people and to children, are you being detained? Do you want to yell to me your name as he's being thrown out by security? For more, we go to McAllen, where we're joined by Zanen Jimenez Perez, advocacy director for the Texas Civil Rights Project, part of the team that uncovered this new Trump administration policy. Zanen, it's great to have you back with us. You were right there in the hotel on the fourth floor. Can you explain uh, how you came to learn ICE was secretly holding children in hotels like these. Hi, yes. Good morning. Glad to be here. So part part of what we're seeing here with the video, right, with Andy bravely stepping forward and, and be basically taking abuse by these unnamed guards when we were there, is that uh, for many months, weeks now, especially since the CDC order that effectively um, the Trump administration used to end asylum, we, we've known that uh, folks who have been coming into the border to legally seek asylum, including unaccompanied children, that instead of going through the process that is spelled out by law, um, the Trump administration has been just basically expelling them, right, without due process and without any paper trail, in effect, basically violating their due process. So for the last couple of weeks, we've known that the number of children who have been under the custody of the federal government and the Office of Refugee Resettlement has decreased um, over the course of the pandemic. And so over in that time, in June, we filed the lawsuit um, on behalf of one of the children that was expelled. And through her um, experience and working with her, we came to find out that, there, that she was held in a hotel. And that sort of set up for us a period of investigation to try to find, well, what did she mean, right? What do you mean that you're in a hotel if you're an unaccompanied child that was never supposed to have happened to you in the first place? And so after a couple of weeks of investigation and working with the Associated Press, which broke the story, 
last Tuesday, we were actually able to uncover that the Hampton Inn Hotel in McAllen, Texas, was being used to house and detain individuals, including unaccompanied children, but also other asylum seekers, including other family units, before they were expelled from the country. And it's important to sort of note the distinction between expulsion versus deportation, because under deportation, which is a legal process, there is a paper trail, right? There's a way for us to be able to track what is going on and try to do some legal intervention. But under expulsion, under Title 42 of the CDC order, what's happening is that the administration is basically just apprehending people, holding them at black sites, either like this Hampton Inn Hotel or other hotels across the country, or quite frankly, maybe moving now to um, other government prisons before they're just summarily expelled, disappeared basically from the country, and it becomes almost impossible for groups like us, other immigration attorneys or other human rights advocates to try to even find individuals to try to start some type of legal process on their behalf. Well, so then, uh, Jaime Perez, I wanted to ask you, uh, this, we often hear in the United States talk of the Black Belt South, uh, those portions of the United States that were over, over, still overwhelmingly African-American. Really, the area of McAllen, South Texas, the Rio Grande Valley is the brown belt <laughs> of the United States, where counties and cities are 80, 90 percent uh, Latino. What with Latino elected officials, what is your understanding of what the local officials know, if anything, about what's going on here with the federal uh, agencies? Yeah, so once sort of everything became viral on Thursday, we quickly came to find out, find out that the city of McAllen, to, uh, from what they told us, that they really didn't have any knowledge of what was going on in the Hampton Inn Hotel. But this is part of the wider picture, right? The things that we're seeing in Portland, which uh, DHS agents, including Border Patrol agents, where, you know, Portland is out on the border, um, they are disappearing folks, protesters, right? The thing that's happening, though, at the border in the Rio Grande Valley, in El Paso, in, in Arizona, is that the heavy militarization because of DHS over the 20, last 20 years have already have been experienced by the community here for decades, right? Hyper-militarization, unaccountable federal agents that are basically shooting individuals with impunity. There's been numerous deaths of children and other individuals in, in ICE and also Border Patrol detention facilities here. Border wall construction is ongoing and even ramping up in the middle of the pandemic. And there have been this type of hyper-militarization on brown communities here at the border for decades and decades and decades. And so what we saw on Thursday was also an outcrop of that. And unfortunately, this is definitely something that is being imposed under the national security apparatus coming to Washington, D.C., with no regard to the communities that have actually been here and live here and have been undergoing this militarization for decades. And I wanted to get your response to the Hilton Company, which owns Hampton Inn brand. They said, our policy has always been that hotels should not be used as detention centers or for detaining individuals. We expect all Hilton properties to reject business that would use a hotel in this way. Your response and what are you demanding of them? Yeah, you know, definitely on Friday, we had that um, statement from the Hilton Company, but we also saw that in the statement, they said that they were no longer detaining individuals at that Hampton Inn Hotel. But when we went on Saturday, we definitely found still families there that were waving at us from the, the window, right? And so we definitely knew that they had to, and on Monday, we saw the Hilton Company actually update their statement to clarify what was actually going on. And so we know that this sort of uh, back and forth is happening and that there is definitely 
definitely accountability that the Hilton company needs to have because um, it definitely happened under their noses, right? It happened not just in the, in, in the Valley, but also in, as you mentioned, in Arizona and in other locations. So definitely there's some more oversight and accountability that needs to happen there. But the wider point I think here is that these black sites that are being operated by the DHS, whether they're at a Hilton uh, Ritz-Carlton, or even one of the government prisons that we already already have a network of along the border, the, the wider picture here is that there's no oversight, no accountability to what's going on. So we could have families and other detained folks in here in our community still, and there would almost be no way for us to find out until unless we do a big investigation like we just did to uncover one site. So if this is what it takes to uncover one location and try to stop the illegal expulsion of just 17 individuals, which you know, we're, we know that there were more than 17 in there, so we're still actively looking for those under indivi other individuals who were moved this weekend under the cover or a hurricane. So if this is all happening with no oversight, we, we can only just kind of imagine what other black sites and what other secrecy is being operated by DHS along the border. You're calling for a congressional investigation so you don't have to imagine? Exactly, yes. So this is the type of oversight that we need, right? We need people to start asking questions like, how many people have been expelled? How many unaccompanied minors? Where are these locations? And why, aren't, why isn't there access to legal counsel at these, at these areas? And so before we start, uh, we, we can't um, intervene on behalf of individuals unless we know the full picture. And unfortunately, right now, the administration has been using the COVID pandemic to basically create a, a, a cloud of secrecy over their asylum process and the asylum, illegal asylum policies here at the border. And we really need to shine a light on that. Well, you mentioned the hurricane, and we want to stay at the Texas-Mexico border to look at what's happened to asylum seekers in the Mexican city of Matamoros, uh, just across from Brownsville, Texas, one of the largest refugee camps that houses more than a thousand asylum seekers, including newborns and elderly people, told to evacuate overnight when the river next to it, the Rio Grande, started to rise and flood their tents. Rain from Hurricane Hannah has continued to devastate the area. These are people who have been waiting for months for court dates under a U.S. immigration policy informally known as Remain in Mexico. For more, we're joined by Sister Norma Pimental. She is executive director of Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. Welcome to Democracy Now! Can you describe what happened last night and what people need to know? Thank you. Uh, yes, the, we have been very concerned for the, the thousand, almost 2,000 individual refugees that are waiting there in Matamoros and seeing that the river is cross, growing. Yes? Keep going. Yes, we want. We just want to make sure that they're safe. And we, together with the authorities of Matamoros, the, the immigration uh, in Mexico, we are we're trying to work with the families to move them to a safer space. Uh, and because they're afraid, they're afraid that what is happening to them and not wanting to leave the area, they, we continue to just monitor the river and we're prepared to move them to a safer space to this morning or throughout this day. And, and uh, Sister Norma, in terms of how the uh, how uh, the United States, uh, we're hearing all the attention placed on the storm in the U.S., very little on the impact on Mexico right across the border. Well, we 
we see the the families in Mexico. I mean, all the all the border is being affected on both sides of the U.S. and the Mexican border, and and there's a lot of extensive flooding in both sides. And so uh, we already seen how the river they're letting go w- w- water is being released from by by along the rivers areas to release all the flooding that is happening in Reynosa and other other cities already. The, the the river has gone over and covered uh, a lot of areas, and so we were afraid that this is happening also in Matamoros, and so um, we're trying to do our best to assist the families and help the Mexican authorities to, that are concerned for the safety of the families. I want to turn to Josue Cornejo, um, Honduran asylum seeker who's been forcibly living at the Matamoros encampment with his family for a year due to Trump's Remain in Mexico policy. Ya que fueron dos noches y dos días de desvelo, porque ya para, para que... There were some very difficult days and nights, two long sleepless nights. The rain has passed, but it's now headed to the mountains. What are the consequences of that? The Rio Grande flows from up there. The most dangerous part could come if the river floods. The camp is right next to the river. There is no protection for us if the river overflows. So that's Josue describing what's happening there. Can you compare the U.S. response to Mexico, Sister Norma? Well, uh, I wish that the U.S. can see the danger that these families are, are exposed to and that they are allowed to enter the United States and be safe in an area here in the U.S. so we can take care of them as they go through their, their, their asylum process because it's not safe for them to be there in that area. And finally, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post, uh, Sister Norma, um, that COVID-19 has come to our migrant camp. It makes ending the MPP policy even more urgent. In these last 30 seconds, explain how hard COVID has hit there. Well, we are doing our best to control the spread of COVID, and measures are being taken to make sure it doesn't. We're thankful that, that we can do that, but they are truly at the need to move them out of there and allow them to enter the country of the United States is the right way to do it. And I wish that that happened. And we'll link to your piece, MPP, is that Remain in Mexico program. Sister Norma Pimentalo, I want to thank you for being with us, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. And thank you to Zanen Jaimez Perez, the Advocacy Director for the Texas Civil Rights Project. We will continue to follow what's happened to these disappeared children and adults. That does it for our broadcast. Uh, if you want to sign up for our Democracy Now! daily newsletter, you can go to Democracy Now! or text the word Democracy Now uh, to the number 66866. That's Democracy Now, one word. Democracy Now produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Libby Rainey, Nermeen Sheikh, Carla Wills, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe, save lives, wear a mask. <laughs>